that trickle of sweat that's running down your back should be a reminder of why we are in a summer shorts series. It's not because it's a short series on First Peter. It's actually 11 messages. Um, it's because I make a concerted effort or speakers make a concerted effort to have more of a sermonette and a homily of focus than a longer sermon. I'm not always successful, but uh, I don't think the air condition is on or is cooperating today. So I'm going to try to be really sensitive to our time and the sweat running down your back. And because of that, I can go wipe the sweat off my brow that I don't feel obligated to cover, even though we're going verse by verse through 1 Peter, verses 19 through 22. What I want you to do is I want you to get together in a huddle for lunch, and I want you to talk about what does it mean Christ going to preach to those in prison during the time of Noah. Um, yeah, it, it's going to be fun, I promise you. And, and just be prepared for strangers overhearing this passionate uh, conversation saying, what in the world are you Christians talking about? But I'm not going to cover that today. Um, what I want to do is I want to focus once again on what First Peter is all about. There are two great books in the Bible that are a handbook to those of us who find ourselves in trial, suffering, and are anxious about it, are dismayed about it, despairing, doubting what God is up to. Those two great books are Peter and Job. If you look at verse 6 of chapter 1 of Peter, this could be the theme in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, is tested by fire and may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I don't know a lot about metallurgy or goldsmithing, but my basic understanding is, is that gold comes out of the earth as ore. And it's got a lot of impurities and rocks and dirts, dirt in it. And the way that you separate the dirt and the impurities from the pure gold that does not perish in the fire is by fire. And there's no other way to do it. You cannot get the impurities out without the fire. Peter comes to us and he's writing to a group who are under the Emperor Nero. Somewhere around 64, 65 AD in Rome. And they certainly know suffering. And they know trials because they have come out and said, we are followers of this Jewish rabbi hung on a cross, risen from the dead, walked the earth for 40 days, and now is at the right hand of God, and we, that is our home. But while we remain here as resident exiles in Rome, we're not going to live our lives in isolation, in a holy huddle, a spiritual ghetto, as Francis Schaeffer calls it. But we are going to serve, and we're going to love everyone in our community and culture. But we know that we're going to need to draw upon another power outside of ourself if we're going to be 
steadfast. And Peter says, be steadfast in Christ. Christ, your constant companion. Christ, your Savior. Christ, your Lord, abides with you. Be steadfast even as you look to him and how he was steadfast in suffering. His suffering took our sin away from us as he became sin in our place. And it was suffering on the cross that separated out the impurities in him, even though there was no impurity in and of himself. But he took that. And he came out on the other side as our glorified Lord. And we make much of him. But we must be willing at the outset, what Peter is telling us in this passage again, in this theme, we must be willing to look at suffering differently than the world looks at it. We must be willing to look at trials, insults, reviling, cursing, evil deeds differently. Different in that we must see it even as Christ, our great defender, sees it. Without further ado, I just want to look at two points this morning. Don't, um, don't get distracted by all the subpoints. Um, I've got some of you who are very faithful in reading through the outline, and you're going to look at one, the, all the subpoints. But I give you all these subpoints, not because I'm going to be able uh, to spend a lot of time on each one but because I can't spend a lot of time on each one. I want to have them out there for you for your community group Bible study or for your personal devotions that you can go over this text again, particularly looking for points of application. But the two things that I want to show you is that you can face suffering and trial with a steadfast faith, with your faith and your, your witness and confidence of joy intact By doing two things. First of all, you've got to have a steadfast sufferer's look. And a steadfast sufferer's sufferer's look at suffering. Look at verse 10. He says, whoever desires to love life and see good days. Um, The first thing that it looks as the sufferer as a Christian And if you're not a Christian this morning, I hope you find this helpful for me to try to describe how the Christian is different and how they do have a different world and life view and how there is an expectation from our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ, that we handle suffering differently as different as those without Christ would handle it. Here he says, if you desire to, if you love life and you want to see good days, then you need to conduct yourself with a good life. Well, what's a good life? You look at verse 8 and he gives us five characteristics of the Christian in community. Five characteristics. And the five characteristics or a common interest and outlook. You can I would cross-reference C.S. Lewis and his, four, his book on the four loves. And he talks about friendships are born when two people come into a common circle with a common interest. And so he's saying that a common interest, a common outlook, 
that that begins a friendship and it begins a Christian in community with others. Feeling your pain and your joy. That's what he means when he says sympathy. It's not empathy that I look at you and I say, oh, I'm so sorry. It's sympathy, but I weep with you when you weep. And I rejoice with you when you rejoice. Peter is saying that's what sufferers in Christian community are supposed to look like. Nobody suffers alone because of what they have in common, even Christ. Thirdly, you love like family. You love like family. I think this is the number one criteria of spotting a Christian is do they love others? And we don't all we don't all enjoy one another, just like we don't all enjoy every family member in our biological family, but we are called to be not simply friends, we're not just a rotary club, but we're family. In other words, that makes a difference when I listen or follow you in my prayers or show up to assist. That love is found nowhere else outside of the Christian community where they love so intimately. And Rosaria, uh, Rosario Butterfield, in speaking about how as Christians, we need to learn those in the LGBT uh, community said, you're going to have to out-love them. That in their community, they really support one another and have a love and an affection for one another. And Peter would say, in the surrounding culture of Rome, you need to model love that you love others in your Christian community the same as you do or even more than your biological family. Fourthly, very, very quick to sense and show affection. That's a tender heart. That it's, it's not jaded, it's not crusty, it's not hard. You allow yourself, when you feel something, you act on it. A tender heart is not just a state of mind, but it's actually action. My heart is beating and it's tenderly. It's, it's, it's easy and quick to show affection. Fifth, fifthly, a humble mind. That's a little me and a big you attitude that we see others as greater than ourselves. We don't see them as less spiritually mature. We don't see them as projects. We don't see them, we don't see them by their sin. We see them as very important and eternal soul that is my brother or sister that I will spend eternity with that has Christ as their master, their shepherd, their Lord. We value them even greater than we do our own self. David Brooks, in writing in The Social Animal, he writes this, the daily activities most associated with happiness, which is what good days are, are all social things just as a strong marriage and time spent with friends. Notice that all five characteristics that Peter is talking about here are social. Every one of them. You've got to have community. And in our age, in our day, where we find ourselves increasingly because of technology and because of lifestyles, we find ourselves increasingly alone, even in a crowd. We can be surrounded by people, and all of a sudden, our, we're distracted by our phone or our iPad, that that's got all of our attention. So we're surrounded, but we're in isolation. 
Peter would say, it takes a community. You're a valued member to contribute, but you also need a community. Big idea coming here. You need community for your sanctification. Now, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the process that God, through Christ and the Holy Spirit, is molding you, changing you, crafting you to be the son and the daughter in the image of Christ that he designs for you to be. And how does he do it? 1 Peter 1.6, the fire. And we are not to face this fire, this crucible of trial and suffering alone. In community, you become literally the hands, the feet, the face of Christ to me. In some part, Christ in you. And like this mosaic or, or quilt that is being put together, you show different aspects of Christ to different members of your community and they to me. Isn't it interesting that Peter is talking about trial here, but as soon as he does so, he says, look, okay, so you're in trial, you're going to face suffering, be steadfast, and then do all of these things that require community. Sympathy, humble-minded, like-minded, tender heart. That's going to equal, the culmination is going to equal a good life. Now before I go on, I've got a question on my notes. What is a good life? I find myself, when I'm facing a trial or I am suffering, many times I find myself questioning God, this is not good. This is not what I planned. This is not what I want. But Peter would say, God will use and is not beyond and he will employ Many, many trials. And he will take, the, take suffering to mold us and to change us to be the son and daughter he designs us to be. And that is good. It is our good. And that is the good work of God. And so Peter can later say in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though, hap- as though something strange were happening to you. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. So he's saying that the Christian looks at suffering. and the, To look at a Christian in suffering, we see a difference in that they look at suffering and saying, God is at work and this is good. He is moving even those things that I want and I think are good. He's moving those from me to give me a better good. His good. Suffering is not coming into my life because I deserve it. Because God's mad at me. Though it sounds paradoxical, suffering and trial come into my life because God is so committed to me. So committed to me to make me the image bearer that he's always designed me to be. And every day becomes better and better as we grow in maturity of Christ and become more Christ-like. But if you're like me, you found that I don't change so much when things are good as when things are painful. I pray more during trial than I ever do whenever it's good. 
I certainly pray with more passion. I need my community. But beware, before I leave this point, I, I grew up on a small cattle farm outside of Greenville. And it was in the spring of the year that we were always faithful in the morning before we went about our chores to count the cows, those expectant with, um, with calves. Those that were, spring was calving season. And the reason we needed to count them was because if one was missing, then we knew that she was drawing very close to delivery because there's a, there's a tendency for an animal that is wounded to separate itself and to go off with its wounds away from the herd. We can be like that. We can have community groups that can become very plastic, very pretend. I want to encourage you at Two Rivers, what would it look like for our community groups to be filled with people who are wounded and who are hurting, but they're bringing their wounds to the Christian community, to brothers and sisters, who will speak the gospel and remind them when I forget. They will speak of confidence and faith when I am full of fear and doubt. They will speak of the forgiveness of my sins that I think are unforgivable. They will tell me of their own shortcomings when I think that they have none. Don't leave community. Where are you taking your wounds? Where are you taking your suffering? Where are you taking your doubts and your fears? I pray that you would be found to take them into community, whether it's a community group, a Bible study, a group of friends at Two Rivers, or other Christian friends. And then also pray that you won't be afraid when other people open up and let you in. That you'll walk in. Um, D... Let me jump down to D. Looks like life that trusts the eyes and ears of the Lord. And here I can transition and segue to the second and last point. Peter goes to the psalm of Psalm 34. And if you turn to Psalm 34, and you don't have to, and we don't have it printed in your outline, but Psalm 34 is two things. Number one... It is a psalm of David when he was on the run. And there's a, there's a caption under Psalm 34 in most of your Bibles that say, this psalm was written when David, on the run, feigned insanity. He acted as if he were crazy in order to protect his life. In other words, in order to try to preserve his life, he had Every, every side was pursuing David and his life. And in order, in order to protect his life, he became like a... He, became, he let spittle run through his beard. He spoke gibberish. He would just write crazy things on the wall. And people left him alone. And he wrote this psalm. Number two. Psalm 34 is an acrostic. It's 17 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And we believe it would have been used in the church like a catechism. Very similar to our Apostles' Creed, Psalm 34 would have been known on the hearts and the minds of the believers. Peter doesn't 
quote or cite the whole psalm, but he really gets at the heart of it. And the, the heart of it is verse 12 to say, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And he's just told us in verses 9 and 10 that when you are cursed, when you're reviled, don't respond in kind. But instead, pray for them, bless them, serve them. And instead of setting your face and your thoughts on the hurt, it says in verse 10, let him keep his tongue from evil. His lips from speaking deceit, let him turn away from evil. In other words, instead of dwelling on the hurt, instead of rehearsing it and the suffering that I'm going through because of what that person said or because of what that person did, instead of looking at it, focusing on it, instead of talking about it, instead of rehearsing it in my mind, turn away with all confidence that the face of my Lord, He sees, He knows, and in His wisdom, He's in charge of it. He's in charge of it even for my good. And turn to Him. But I've got to be mindful and I've got to rehearse it like a catechism that my suffering and my trials are not outside of the face and the mind and the wisdom and the plan of God. It's ordained. It is ordered. There is not one thing that I suffer that is not outside of His plan or His purpose, though I I may not see how it is for my good, but it is for me to have good days. Secondly, in verses 13 through 18, Peter shifts and he says, the power... The power to be able to face suffering like this, to turn away from trial, to turn away from curses, comes from seeing Christ and observing how Christ faced those things, how He faced suffering, how He faced trial. In verse 14, He says, Have no fear of them. And He's talking about the culture and the community outside of the Christian community around them. And He's saying, Don't be afraid of them. Don't be troubled, or the word there means shaken at your foundation. Don't be shaken up by them. Instead, be steadfast. Hang on. Hang on mentally. Hang on. Hook your heart into it. Hang on visually and see Jesus Christ. And it's noteworthy that he says that looking at Jesus Christ, He says in verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. And that's the gospel, by the way. He was completely pure gold. I was completely impure. He suffered the greater fire that I could be seen by God as pure gold like Christ. He suffered in my place. But Peter doesn't say he died for our sins, but he's very, he's very particular to use the term suffered because he wants us to not simply see Christ dying on the cross to pay the price of our sin, what he did, but he wants us to see that in his life and prior to his death, he suffered 
He suffered cursing. He suffered insult. He suffered certainly physical. But there is not anything that you can suffer that he did not suffer. So what does that mean? It means that he understands. It means that there's nothing, nothing that I can take to him and he will count as too small or too great. G.K. Chesterton in The Everlasting Man, talking about Bethlehem and the night that Jesus was born, said this, The strange kings fade into a far country and the mountains resound no more with the feet of the shepherds. And only the night and the cavern lie in fold upon fold over something more human than humanity. Something more human than even you. Something more human than humanity lies in that manger. We have, we have a real tendency to think about Christ in the heavenlies. And that's well and that's good. But do not neglect when you face suffering and trial His humanity. He will become most precious to you if you realize His favorite title for Himself was not the Son of God. Though He was. And we, are, we love that. God come to earth. But He came in the flesh. He came with a body. He came with feelings. He is those five marks of the Christian community. He is tenderhearted. He is sympathetic. He is. He looks at us and He says, you are my sons and my daughters. You are my family. And to realize that you, we, we don't need to keep Him simply in the heavens, but to realize that whatever I suffer, I can have questions as to the why but I need never doubt that I'm alone for a moment or that Christ knows, understands, and He cares for me. Even to the forming of a Christian community around me that have Christ in them and with them as well. The Scriptures tell us that Jesus Christ suffered. And He suffered... While he was doing good. And as verse 17 says. It is better to suffer for doing good. If that should be God's will. Than for doing evil. Peter is not questioning that it's God's will. But he's saying now that you recognize. That God can take your suffering. And make something beautiful. Then we can be confident. With God's face with His understanding of all that we're facing in this life, that our suffering is molding us to be the sons and daughters that He designs, but it also, He turns and He says, now as I'm molding you to be my sons and daughters, love one another in community. And like a circle, it completes itself. Being His sons and daughters and imaging Him, you love me and I love you. All to the praise and the glory of God our Father. I think that 
there are going to be some of you right now, everyone in this room is either just coming out of suffering, you're in suffering, or you're getting ready to go into it. And that happens every week at Two Rivers. We have people right now that are just coming out of great periods of suffering. We have people right now that are in suffering. And we have people right now that are just starting to enter in. What is God going to do? Where is He going to meet us in our suffering? He tells us two things. He's saying, I'm giving you a community, a safe community. Some have suffered greatly, but they can identify all the more with your addictions, your great fallings, your great weaknesses, and your great failings. They can identify. And they will in turn direct you, secondly, to visualize, to see, and to have a growing intimacy with Jesus Christ.